Well, morning and uh, welcome to podcast four. And today I'm very pleased to have Ian Riley, the CEO of the World Cement Association with me. Ian, I do this every time I say I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself, I introduce you, but perhaps you could give a, a little background to uh, your role in the association and, and also the association itself. So uh, good morning, Alex, and hello to everyone. Uh, my name, as Alex said, is Ian Riley. I'm the CEO of the World Cement Association. And uh, we represent cement producers around the world, but also other stakeholders in the cement industry. Uh, so engineering companies, technology providers, suppliers, uh, and so on. And uh, we, we really have uh, uh, three ambitions. One is to be the voice of the industry. So including uh, cement producers and the, and the other stakeholders. Uh, secondly is to help our members improve their operational performance and their profitability. And thirdly is to accelerate the decarbonization of the cement industry. So I'm delighted this morning to have a chance to talk to you about this, this third topic. Brilliant. And accelerating decarbonization, as you know, is our tagline as well. So we're definitely uh, sort of working from different ends of the same issue. Um, so that's great. So today we're, we're going to talk about a few things, um, but let, let's kick off not with technology, we will come on to technology, and obviously that's where the focus often is when you talk about decarbonisation. But let's just start with a kind of a, a big question, which is tell me a bit about your sense of what is needed from both the industrials dealing with this issue, but also policymakers. So let's start with that. What, what's your view okay. on what's going to drive net zero? Yes, yeah, so if we go back... Uh... 20 years, or more than 20 years now, the cement industry or uh, 10 companies, 10 large companies within the cement industry uh, set up something called the Cement Sustainability Initiative under the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. And so this was a long time before there was any uh, great pressure from society or, or policymakers to do this. But the cement industry recognized that um, the impact on the environment particularly CO2, but not only CO2, other emissions, uh, safety record, uh, was a key issue that they should seek to improve. So they set objectives um, uh, for uh, improvements versus 1990. And most of those were, were targets that they aim to achieve uh, in the last few years, 2015 or so. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think uh, almost all of the players achieved those targets that they set. Uh, but if you look at that, that was a little bit low-hanging fruit. So in the, in the cement industry, as we'll talk about in a bit more detail later, I'm sure, uh, there are some things that you can do to reduce carbon emissions that also reduce costs and improve profitability. So those are really uh, sort of no-brainers. They require some investment in many cases, but uh, those are things that can be done that are in everybody's interest. But as you, as you uh, progress on that, then there are more trade-offs. And, and so then the policy environment really becomes very important. And uh, it's actually very difficult to get policies um, to work in the way that they're supposed to. I think that the ETS in Europe uh, is an example of this. And in fact, um, uh, we'll be, WCA will be organizing a, a podcast uh, that will come out in a few weeks' time, uh, specifically looking at this issue. But there's, there's quite a lot of evidence that the, um, that the ETS 
for the cement sector has not reduced carbon emissions over the last uh, 20 years or so, and possibly has even increased them. Why, why is that? I mean, any policy, any rule, anything, always has an unintended consequence. Of course, it's just mm. life, isn't it? But why, why particularly with ETSs, has it uh, delivered those kind of perhaps well, I, increases? I think that the problem with, with uh, the EU system or the ETS system is that you have to have 28 countries agreeing to any changes. So they had a lot of political negotiations at, um, at the beginning over who would receive what quotas. And having finally agreed that, it was pretty much impossible to change. But the, as a result of the financial crisis uh, in 2008, so shortly after the scheme started, uh, the environment changed and, and the amount of economic activity, and particularly in the cement industry, was significantly reduced. So all of the players had excess credits. Mm. Um, and the excess credits were, were maintained so long as the plants operated at at least 50% capacity. So there was an incentive to keep the inefficient plants running. You know, had there been no ETS, then a lot of the older plants would have been closed down, and the more efficient plants with lower uh, carbon footprints would have uh, continue to operate. So in a nutshell, that's the, that was the issue with the system. And, and it shows uh, some of the difficulties in anticipating uh, how things will really work out. I think the EU has a particular problem because of the number of nations involved. But any multilateral scheme, and the most effective schemes are likely to be multilateral, are, are going to have that kind of problem. So what 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 next then? If you, I mean, I know there are no simple answers to this, but if you were going to sort of point to perhaps a couple of things that would make a difference, if, uh, if there are policy influencers or makers, you know, listening to this, what I'm sure they won't be surprised by what you're going to say. But what would you say? What what do you think uh, we need to? So see? I think there there are two different approaches, and and one approach is essentially the approach that the Europeans have been considering, which is you price carbon. So whether that's a trading scheme or a tax, you know, there are pros and cons for, for, for either one. Uh, but if you can design it so that it does deliver the policy goals, then you can clearly provide incentives to uh, reduce carbon. Effectively, what you're doing is you're putting a price on dumping CO2 into the atmosphere. Mm. So that's, that's really what we need to do uh, to create the incentives to drive behavior more quickly. Mm. Uh, so that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is uh, something that we've seen in China, and maybe the best example of this is actually not on CO2, but on uh, NOx reduction, because uh, air pollution in China has been a big issue for uh, many years now. And the Chinese uh, first established the, the technical feasibility of uh, the uh, requirements that they were putting in place, and then they mandated extremely strict limits on all of the cement plants. So they came down from an uh, initial limit of 800 milligrams per normal cubic meter uh, down to 400. And now in some places it's as low as 100 yeah. and even talk that it might go lower. And some of the best producers are down at 25, 30, a level we thought was impossible a few years ago. So that, that's pushed technology. There are various technologies that are involved, but that's pushed technology forward. Uh, but the technology existed before those requirements requirements came into play. So I think with CO2, the challenge with that approach is today the, there are some technologies that we, we know how to use, um, but to get down to zero, 
we need new technologies. Yeah. So mandating you know, lower limits today would you know, be rather ineffective. Mm. Yes, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because you sort of, anytime I have these conversations, I think uh, immediately to what, what do people outside of the industrial uh, sphere see when they look in? And what, what they see is resistance or what they see might be a kind of uh, yeah, pushback against what is necessary but it's not as simple as that is it it's it's you know you could come up with a whole load of simple rules that still don't get you to the uh, the actual outcome you want which is carbon neutrality um yeah and I think kind of showing what industry is up to is, is sometimes the hardest bit of this because it can seem like there's just you know resistance or uh passivity sometimes but that brings me on to my well, next I, question then so there's, so there's a yeah, sorry. sorry, if I could just say something on that. I think the other context that we should think about is concrete is used in huge quantities. Um, so cement is, is used basically in concrete and, and concrete is used in, in huge quantities around the world. About 90% of it in the developing world. Mm. You know, so in, in most of these countries, the idea that they would have to pay two or three times as much for their cement is not going to fly unless there's a large amount of external funding from from that from first world countries. Mm. Uh, so I think when we, when we look at what is a feasible decarbonization uh, strategy for the industry or roadmap for the industry, it, it has to take place at reasonable cost. Uh, otherwise it, it won't be something that is accepted worldwide. Mm. Well, let's, uh, let's have a, a kind of a look then. There's, there's so many, one, one of the big surprises for me coming into this sort of end of last year, I suppose, was you, know, you read a lot about, well, cement is responsible, concrete's responsible for whatever it is, seven or 8% of global CO2. So my assumption was, well, we must make sure they do something. Well, that's not the issue. There are plenty of projects. I'm just, it's just kind of, I guess everything's at a fairly early stage, but you tell me what, what's interesting, what's kind of emerged as projects or what, what projects have emerged, sorry, in the last couple of years or the last year or so that have really interested you? What do you see kind of coming up that you think, yeah, that's that's a kind of technology or that's an approach I want to keep an eye on? So there's, there's one particular project which is also slightly representative of, of some uh, similar approaches. Um, and this, this project, we, well, it's not really a project, but it's um, a product that has been developed in Switzerland called LC3. So LC3 is a, a cement that reduces the amount of clinker uh, in the cement. So clinker is the part of the uh, cement that is responsible for the vast majority of the CO2 emissions. So this is what you get when you burn limestone. Um, so it reduces the clinker uh, in a, um, a, a SEM1, a, a top grade cement, uh, from about 95% down to about 50%. Uh, with the addition of, uh, of kaolin, metakaolin, so calcined kaolin and limestone. So the, of course the, there's a slight carbon footprint with uh, the calcined kaolin, but it's much, much lower than it is with the, uh, with the clinker. Mm. Uh, so the net impact of that is a very substantial reduction in the CO2 footprint of the product. Now it's difficult to get new products accepted in the uh, construction industry because People quite rightly worry about buildings falling down and bridges falling down. This is uh, obviously not a good thing. Uh, but, but I think that these, um, uh, these approaches are uh, quite robust. Uh, we understand why they work. We understand at a, a sort of a, a macro level and a microscopic level why they work. And uh, yeah, metacaolin and limestone have been used in cements for a long time. 
but it's it's the synergistic effect of using them together in in the ratios that are involved in LC3 that is giving the good performance. So this is uh, something that the industry has been talking about for a few years now, but. Uh, we started to see the first projects in, in Latin America and in uh, West Africa. Um, there have been uh, new plants constructed that are producing LC3. And I think this is something that will accelerate and um, will have a big impact uh, on the carbon footprint in certain countries. I should just say at this point that uh, if you're listening to this and you can hear mad squeaking in the background, it's not Ian. It's not even Ian's chair. It's that they're based in Paddington. So the happy world of London is, is I guess we'll take it as a good sign, as something that's kind of coming back to life. But that's what that's what that is. Um, okay, so so that's that's one kind of project. Um what what else are there kind of other either technologies or even approaches that you see members taking that you think uh, warrant a second look or you know warrant being highlighted? Yes, uh, so if I can get on to how we decarbonize the cement industry, then maybe that will yeah. um, put it in context for, for the question. Uh, so we've had, a, we've had three levers, three main levers to reduce the carbon footprint of, uh, of cement uh, that we've been working on for, for many years now. Uh, so the first is uh, energy efficiency. And uh, so I, I should start by saying that of the emissions in cement, about round numbers, about 60% come from the calcination of the limestone about 30% from the fuel burnt in, in that process, and about 10% from electricity, uh, primarily used in grinding, in uh, grinding the raw mill and grinding the finished cement. So uh, when we look at the uh, uh, energy efficiency levers, we're talking about the 30% which relates to fuel and the 10% that relates to electricity. And so there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of work that's been done on that. Uh, I guess if you looked at you know, the global industry, there's probably been you know, 20 to 30% improvement in, in, in that area over the last 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. And there's been new, new kiln technologies that are now widely used and uh, a series of improvements in milling technologies that have improved um, efficiency. So uh, certainly when it comes to new plants, then that's a very easy um, decision to make. Of course, you use the, the newest technologies and, and have the lowest energy efficiencies. So, so we now see a situation where the industry in, in China and in India is much more efficient than the industry in Europe and America. So that probably surprises uh, some people, but there's quite a substantial difference. But even, even for the Indians and the Chinese, if you compare the average with the newest plants that are being built, there's quite a gap. Yeah? So there is still you know, quite a bit we can do in terms of energy efficiency. The, the difficulty there is that it requires capex. Yeah, the, the, you know, it requires investment. So there are some things where the investment payback is relatively quick and we should be doing those. But, you know, the, the big things, it's pretty hard to justify on existing plants. Sorry, Alex. No, no, it was fine. I was just interested. So in energy efficiency, I, I mean, there are all kinds of ways that different companies pursue this. What what are the, the kind of main things you're seeing? Is it is it kind of digitizing and sort of bringing in more automation or what 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 is it that's really driving that in in the cement well, we are seeing that now but but what has has driven the uh, the big improvements in energy efficiency is is changes in the um, the pyro technology so the, the kiln technology uh, the the preheating technology the energy recovery uh, technology so it's really that that thermal process efficiency 
And would I be right that, so um, I know you want to talk about other aspects as well as energy efficiency, but it sounds like, so most of the gains there, it's not necessarily been specifically about decarbonisation. It's actually just been, this is something we need to do for operational efficiency and to improve our margins. So a happy outcome of thinking in that way has been to reduce. Yes, the two go absolutely hand in hand. So so, uh, the the projects that have gone ahead have been justified on financial basis. You know, mm. So it, it's it's not been, okay, we're saving carbon so we can do this. It's a, you know, this will save carbon, but it gives us a reasonable return on investment so we can do it. I know uh, when we very first spoke, you were talking, and this was back in February, yeah, I remember you talking about alternative fuels and some of the challenges around that as your next bucket of things that the industry right. needs to look at. So yeah, tell me, tell me a little about what's happening there. Yeah, so the idea with alternative fuels is is really twofold. Um, so one, one is it's a, a way of reducing fuel costs. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And again, a lot of the things that have been done have started from that motivation. Now, I, I recall that there were objectives uh, of some of the players in the industry uh, uh, 15, 20 years ago of having zero fuel costs. And so the idea was that you would replace coal, usually coal, not always, but usually coal with um, uh, with waste materials, and you will get paid for burning the waste materials so that you will be able to get down to a zero fuel cost. Uh, I don't think today anybody believes that's possible because the the value of waste has increased because more people are trying to reuse waste. Um, so, But it still can be cheaper than coal. So there's still that financial incentive of using waste versus using uh, fossil fuel. But uh, today, of course, it's become much more of an issue that uh, we want to reduce the carbon footprint, so the carbon intensity of coal is very high, and if we can move away uh, from coal then uh, without incurring extra costs, then that's a very uh, good way of doing it. I think the other thing is that, that burning waste is providing a, a service to the economy and society in general. So one of the alternatives is you can uh, burn the municipal waste in a cement plant. And because of the higher temperatures and, and the way it cools, you don't get the same problems. So you don't get dioxins generated. And of course, you've got a vast uh, quantity of uh, clinker going through. So the increase, you don't get the concentration of, of um, heavy metals that you do in the bottom ash of incinerators. So it, it's, um, it's also a lot cheaper to do it safely. So the cement industry is providing a you know, a service to the to the cities of disposing of their municipal waste. The other thing that is one of the traditional levers in um, the third traditional lever is is clinker factor. So this is very much the uh, LC3 story. So if you can reduce the proportion of clinker in cement by adding other cementitious materials, then you can re- reduce the um, per ton of cement emissions. So this is something that uh, there's been a fair amount of progress. We use a lot of the um, slag, for example, uh, so uh, a waste material from the steel uh, steel plant from Blasman is still uh, making. Um, in many countries, uh, quite a lot of fly ash is used, so from the coal-fired uh, power stations. There's an issue in, in terms of fly ash quality, so the, the proportion of fly ash used is much lower than slag, but there's still... Quite a, quite a bit used. Natural porcelains in, in some countries where you have, uh, you know, uh, volcanic activity, uh, where you have the natural porcelains. Uh, uh, so um, there, there are a variety of, of uh, cementitious materials. And a lot of the cement used in, in um, countries, in most countries around the world, 
uh, is uh, is a blended cement. Uh, so it has uh, the other cementitious materials with a portion of, of clinker. And the the clinker the, the overall clinker factor has has come down over the years. Um, so that's one of the levers of, of reducing the uh, carbon footprint. And so that one we might sort of term a kind of a product shift rather than a, an yes. operation. Yeah. The first two are kind of more how a, how the facilities run, the, the yeah the operational strategy, and this is a product based strategy. That's right. So you so, introduced me to Blue Planet as an example. Would you fit? Are they hit, do they fit here or do they fit? No, as no they fit later. <laughs> Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> Um, so in terms of cementitious, this is actually quite an interesting area. I mentioned LC3 earlier, which is, is really quite an exciting uh, product. And um, so there are some countries where you don't find traditional cementitious materials. And um, I, I was talking to EBRD uh, recently, and they've been working with the Egyptian cement industry and the Egyptian government uh, on um, helping them to uh, change the product codes uh, to allow LC3 to be used. Um, and, and in Egypt, you, you don't have uh, fly ash, you don't have slag, you don't have natural land. So their average clinker factor is extremely high. And so uh, LC3 in Egypt will make a, a really big difference uh, because they do have kaolins, which is the raw material that you need. They do have limestones. So the, the, the raw material is locally available and uh, will allow them to reduce their their clinker factor very substantially. In, uh, in, in some countries, the clinker factor is already fairly low, so the impact will be somewhat less. But I, I think in, in all cases, there is some reduction potential. That's kind of fascinating, isn't it? What a difference. I mean, I know it's the same for many industries that regional variations, regional supplies and things like that make such an impact. But, but, but so here, it's, yes, so absolutely. Your natural geography, isn't it? And yes, what's available. Yeah. So Egypt is one example. Um, uh, another example uh, is uh, one of our, our members, uh, OYAK, well, one of their subsidiaries, uh, Simpoids, has uh, built a, a plant in West Africa, um, in Ivory Coast, uh, which is uh, specifically to produce an LC3 cement. Because in West Africa, there's uh, very little limestone. And so all of the clinker has to be imported. And so you can replace imported clinker with uh, uh, locally uh, mined and produced metacalin. And uh, so that is also interesting. It also reduces uh, the, the quantity that has to be shipped and so on. It has uh, you know, foreign currency impact, so it helps uh, balance foreign currency and so forth. Uh, so you see that there. So I think areas which are short of limestone are, are also extremely interested in, in LC3. Uh, so th there's a range of different kinds of geography where this is a very attractive option. And then I know kind of last and, and a growing area, but still relatively small in, in impact at the moment for cement are the kind of newer technologies, particularly carbon capture. What are you seeing that interests you from those newer technologies for your sector? Well, perhaps just before we move off the cementitious materials, some of the new technologies are affecting uh, cementitious materials as well. Uh, so, uh, for example, um, there's a company in the U.S. called Solidio who has a different kind of cement uh, which uses CO2 to cure it rather than water. So it absorbs a considerable amount of CO2 in the curing process. But because it requires um, uh, high concentrations of CO2, it's limited really to precast. Um, so the majority of, of cement is, is used in, in ready mix. Uh, and so 
that's been a limitation. But they've now developed a uh, essentially a cementitious additive based on their cement technology, which allows it to be used in, in ready-mix. So there are some new technologies in that cementitious area, not just LC3, but a number of others uh, that, are, that are looking at other ways of producing replacement products for, for clinker. Mm. Uh, one of the limitations is always, you know, how much of the raw materials do you have? Because there's perhaps uh, 40 to 50 billion tons a year of, of ready mix, uh, of concrete, sorry, that is, is used, you have to have huge quantities of the raw materials, otherwise it, it's not going to work. So that, that's always one of the, the, the things to balance. But the, the biggest area where, where new technology is making an impact, as you say, is in, um, in carbon, really carbon usage, I suppose, is, is the specific area. So we've got carbon capture, which of course is common to many industries. And the, the uh, percentage of CO2 in the stack from the cement kiln is uh, perhaps 20% or a bit less than 20%. So this is kind of in the middle of the range. You know, there are, there are some plants, chemical plants that are much higher than that. There are some power plants that are much lower than that. So it, it's a fairly typical challenge for a carbon capture technology. And, you know, there are a number of different uh, carbon capture technologies that are, are being looked at, but these aren't specific to the uh, cement or the building material industry. Uh, so lots of other people can talk about those in much more detail than I can. Um, but it, the, the, the thing that's um, interesting with building materials is, is the potential for usage. And it's really because of the quantity of building materials, um, heavy building materials, concrete that is, is used, uh, that we have this potential for using carbon in these materials. So Blue Planet, as you mentioned earlier, is a, uh, a company in, uh, in San Francisco. And what they're doing is they're uh, essentially they're taking uh, a carbon, a carbon uh, source or a CO2 source from a natural gas um, power plant and injecting it into a calcium slurry. And the calcium slurry comes from demolished, uh, concrete demolished uh, buildings. Uh, and and uh, they essentially acid wash this to produce uh, more or less a virgin aggregate. And then with the remaining calcium slurry, slurry they react it with CO2 to produce a synthetic aggregate. And so this is absorbing CO2. So that's quite interesting. They, the, um, the economics of this, they, 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 they say works in San Francisco, but San Francisco is a little bit of a special case because aggregate prices in San Francisco are very high because normally uh, the aggregates come from a long distance away. Um, and I think they're getting the CO2 and the, and the construction waste at, 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 no, at no charge. So that might translate to uh, European cities. Um, so London, for example, the aggregates also come from quite a long way away and are also pretty expensive. So, you know, maybe there are other opportunities, um, but you really need some carbon incentives to make that more generally uh, viable. Create a market for it, yeah. 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 Um, but there are, you know, there are other um, uh, approaches here. So we have another member, um, uh, Carbon cure that is absorbing CO2 into into ready mix, and um, they've been used a lot recently, haven't they? With the investment, they have, yeah, yeah. No, they've been very successful in in um, expanding the usage of their technologies. So the, the amount of uh, CO2 that's absorbed is is quite modest, but uh, because it improves the quality of the ready mix, it means that you can reduce the cement added to the ready mix, and and that's where the majority of the CO2 saving uh, uh, comes from. So it's a more efficient way of, of making um, uh, concrete from cement. Um, and then uh, we, we see um, uh, yeah, other approaches uh, 
to, to making cementitious materials uh, more effective. So there are, there are companies that are um, uh, treating fly ash to make the fly ash better quality and, and therefore uh, to enable greater usage. Uh, I'm talking to somebody later this week who has a technology that activates uh, potslands, uh, again with the same idea of making them more effective as a cementitious material and enabling increased usage. So there's quite a lot um, uh, going on in, in, an, in, in basically in those two areas, one in cementitious and, and, uh, and one in yeah, carbon usage. When you look at the projects that are working, what are the hallmarks of the cement manufacturers and, and their behavior, their culture that's helping that project forward? Because I think, I think when I look across projects, you can see that there are certain types of businesses that can just help these projects move forward and they seem to get you know, their culture and their organization behind it. Well, tell me a little about what you're seeing. What is it that you're learning about how we create more successes in these areas? So, we can probably put these technologies into sort of two buckets. So there's there's one group that is coming from within the cement industry. So Solidia, LC3, you know, these are uh, yeah, part of the cement industry, let's say. Um, and then there's another group which are coming from tech startups, you know, where people have got together specifically to absorb carbon, you know, to use carbon and so forth. So they, th these two groups have quite different characteristics, I think. And, and it's a bigger challenge for the second group, I think, than the first group, you know, because the first group is already a little bit embedded in, in, in the system. Um, but it, the, conservative, the um, cement industry is very conservative and uh, it, you know, it invests for the long term. So it has, it, it has very much a long term thinking. And I think to be successful in heavy industry, that's essential. So it's not that we can get away from that too much, but uh, it, it does mean that change comes fairly slowly. Uh, what, what would make a difference, I think, is if there were stronger incentives to replace carbon, coming back to what we talked about at the beginning. You know, if you have a carbon price uh, that is yeah, significant and is, is worldwide, then companies will be incentivized to do things that at the moment are, are just costing them money. You know, if you look at what's happening in Europe with uh, experimentation on carbon capture and storage, you know, this is um, obviously a lot of that is funded by government grants and subsidies. But, you know, the cement companies at, at present are, are not really uh, gaining from that. So they think, OK, long term, you know, there's a potential. There will be a carbon price. You know, the, the ETS will uh, in the next phase of the ETS, it, it, it will start to become uh, more beneficial if you can uh, reduce your carbon footprint. But. I think that uh, the speed at which those new technologies are, uh, are um, embraced is really a function of incentives. Is there a challenge for other forms of funding? I mean, I say that, I'm pretty sure I know the answer is <laughs> yes, because most industries say there is. But so is it, to what extent it, uh, is there funding from either capital markets or the kind of, I don't know, venture and private equity for cement companies to form projects around this. Is that a challenge or is that money there as well? Well, there is interest on this. So I think uh, a, lot of, a lot of the existing uh, carbon capture and storage projects uh, have received a lot of money from governments and that's how they've um, continued. But uh, there, there is interest, uh, for example, in um, 
in funding pipelines for the storage. So the, the, the carbon storage is really, is primarily in old oil reservoirs. So in a lot of cases, you've got pipelines that are coming from uh, the oil fields uh, to the markets. And uh, if the oil fields are exhausted, then you could use those pipelines with quite a lot of work, but you could use those pipelines to, uh, to put the uh, carbon uh, back into the, back into the uh, ground. Uh, so there is some interest in funding those kind of mega projects. Uh, and I think uh, it you know, remains to be seen whether they're, they're viable. Yeah. Um, personally, I think they, a project like that, that that involves a huge funding for a pipeline system uh, does does have a risk of being overtaken by newer technology that has a lower cost of disposing of, 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 the, of the carbon. Yeah. Now, whether that proves a barrier to uh, realizing that funding remains to be seen. But I, I think it's clear that there is that uh, technological risk to, to such projects. There is one other question I was hoping to ask you, which is something that has come up quite a lot as we were building the festival was this question of, but who's going to buy our slightly more expensive, lower carbon or carbon free product? You know, and a number of sectors have been asking, you know, what is the market for, for products that maybe will cost more, but have that, they achieve that goal of being more sustainable and potentially carbon neutral. Do you, are you, and your members, is that a concern or are you seeing that, you know, the kind of construction sector will step up and pay that bit more? To, tell me a bit about your perspective on that. Yeah, so, uh, so I mentioned earlier about the, the need for the regulatory incentives. And uh, of course, the other alternative is you have consumer incentives, you know, where the, where the customers are saying we must have product that um, is low carbon. So we aren't seeing that really in any quantity. I mean, it's very, very niche. So a lot of the major players have green cements, but the quantities that are being sold are, is very small. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's largely for government or government funded buildings where that's been you know, something that they've said, okay, on this building, we're going to use you know, low carbon cement. Um, the exception seems to be in Sweden. In, in Sweden, I was talking to uh, Skanska uh, a few weeks ago, and they were saying that there's really quite a premium that people, uh, ordinary consumers, are willing to pay uh, for um, low-carbon uh, construction, low-carbon building. So there, there, there does seem to be, you know, uh, some examples of of where uh, a green product commands a premium, but I think by and large we haven't seen that. Okay, well then, kind of the final final thing from you. What we've talked about a number of things from the technology to the incentives um, that are going to be essential. But your absolute gut feel, Ian, what what's it going to take? What what do you think the kind of two or three most essential next steps are, if both the cement sector and those looking at it and hoping it will make these steps in decarbonisation? What what's going to need to happen? So. The cement sector has been reluctant to make commitments because today we don't have the technology to completely decarbonize. Yeah? So the commitments today have been a commitment to reduce the specific emissions in cement. Uh, and I think, um, I think we can get away from that. And there's a few examples now of companies that have got away from that. But what, what we've been saying as an association for some time now is, is that 
we can see a way of substantially reducing our footprint over the next 10 years using existing technologies, the levers that we know how to pull uh, and some of the, the new technologies that are most advanced like, like the LC3. Um, so we can make a concrete commitment to a, a certain reduction over that period. Um, and we know these technologies are being developed. There's lots of technologies that are being developed, you know, some of which we discussed today. And, and I think we have to make a commitment to achieve decarbonization by, by a given date, um, even though we don't know what the last part of that journey will be, because that will then mobilize resources and, and, and we will start to take more seriously the opportunity to decarbonize. So we've seen um, uh, with, uh, with Dalmia Cement, for example, in India, that they made a commitment a while ago uh, to achieve uh, zero carbon, or well, negative carbon, uh, they said, uh, by 2040. Um, and more recently, uh, at the beginning of uh, the New York Climate Week, we saw a commitment from Lafarge Holson uh, to reduce uh, to zero carbon by 2050. Uh, and then, of course, later that week, we saw the, the commitment from China to uh, uh, decarbonize the whole economy by, by 2060. So uh, I think we start to see more commitments being made. But, but I think that for the cement sector, you know, we should be saying concrete targets for 2030 um, and then, you know, a commitment to achieve the decarbonization. Uh, but the, that part of the roadmap has to be defined later. And uh, what we will hope to see from, from government in the interim is uh, um, uh, an increase in the incentives to to invest in in uh, these new technologies and to, and to decarbonize. Thank you very much for joining me today. I um, yeah, I was very grateful for your help in early on in the research for our festival and the work that we're doing. Um, and anyone that's listening, as Ian mentioned, they are about to launch their own sustainability podcast. I'll put the link to the association in the podcast notes, but you can go there and keep an eye and sign up for their podcast. Uh, shortly thank you very much so alex thank you very much all right take care bye-bye